Welcome to In the Queue, a podcast presented by Messick, Lauer, and Smith. From QSOs to regulatory concerns and everything in between, we will talk about relevant topics, trends, and information in the credit union industry and how they can affect your credit union or QSO. For today's episode, we welcome back Mike Mulvey, an attorney here at Messick, Lauer, and Smith, to discuss the importance of corporate separateness and its impact on the formation and operation of QSOs. Let's get into today's interview with Mike. Good morning and welcome back to In the Queue, Mike Mulvey. How you doing, Mike? Good. How are you, Mike? It's good to be back. Yeah. I was going to say, you're our first uh, repeat guest. So, you know, you have that honorary uh, status now for this podcast. Lucky me. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And um, I think, so we wanted to bring you back onto the podcast, Mike, because you've recently written an article for our firm talking about the importance of corporate separateness in forming and operating QSOs, right? So, you know, this applies to credit unions, applies to the QSOs that they have investments in. And um, I guess just starting, you know, you know, with the, the law itself, right? Like what are the actual rules that apply to QSOs in this area? Right. So and thanks for referencing the, the article. Uh, yeah. Broad strokes in the NCUA regulations under Section 712.4, there's reference to the credit union and QSO maintaining this term corporate separateness. And basically what that means is that both entities are acting separate and independent of each other. Now, the, the understanding is that in these wholly owned QSOs, the, the credit union is the shareholder. They've put in all the money, but it's about making sure that the QSO operates independently and not being micromanaged by the credit union board of directors. And so they lay out a a handful of factors, and it just so happens that these are the similar factors that courts would look at in the event of litigation in the future. And And what could happen is, say, this goes just corporate law in general, you set up a subsidiary company and it serves clients. And you know, an issue arises and a client tries to sue that entity. Well, during the period where they discover more information about that entity, they may find out that there's an investor behind the scenes that is, you know, putting all the money forth. That potential plaintiff is going to attempt to sue that shareholder and pierce this corporate veil. Um, and, And getting a little more into that, generally speaking, shareholders of a of an entity are only liable up to their investment. So for instance, you and I, you could go on a brokerage account and buy shares of Apple stock or something like that. So you bought hundred shares. I know the share price is probably higher than hundred dollars, but for the sake of the- account, Yeah, I was gonna say. Um, and say, you know, Apple starts having issues, the share price goes down to zero, which, you know, this is a very extreme example, but you would only be <laughs> right. liable to that $100. They, no one is going to come after you personally for the things that Apple was doing. Now, in these closely held companies, which the, the QSO would be, if the it is determined by a court that there is some sort of egregious fraud or malfeasance or something going on by the shareholders, and they're just using the setup of this company or QSO as a shell to shield them from liability, courts are more apt to allow plaintiffs to move forward in suing the shareholders directly instead of only getting recourse from the company or QSO that they're actually interacting with. And so 
this idea of maintaining and demonstrating this corporate separateness and this independence is to maintain that liability protection for the shareholders of the entity. Okay. Yeah, that certainly makes sense. And um, not to get you know too much into the legal weeds here, Mike, but um, you know when a court analyzes this, you know, is, is this because I think you had mentioned there's a few factors that they consider. Is like one determinative? Is it really like a balancing effort? Like, how, how, like just again, not not to get too far into it, but how how does that look from a court perspective? No, it's a good question. I'll, I won't get into the weeds on it. It's <laughs> a it's a multi factor analysis that they're doing and one factor alone is not going to be determinative of all right we're going to allow this plaintiff to sue the shareholders directly and and in real life from what i've seen you know my time as a law clerk and then even in law school the stuff you read about it's got to be something like extremely egregious that you're doing if you're following all these corporate norms then there's there should be no issue you know if if it in the event that you have to go to court for an issue with a QSO or subsidiary entity that you have. Right. Okay. So, and, you know, kind of walking through these factors and, and I think, you know, it does depend on which state you're in too, but what I liked about sure. the paper that, um, that you have on our website is um, it kind of walks through these six different business practices, right. That are, um, you know, good practice. I think that they're cited like in the NCUA reg. And it's like I said, I think there's some mirroring, you know, in, in, in courts and how they approach this issue too. So why don't we start there and, and why don't you walk through some of these um, business practices that help demonstrate this um, separate, uh, separate corporate existence between QSOs and credit unions? Sure. Um, and, and I'll say these are the items I'm looking at. And so for some clients, I'll do these what I call corporate audits and I'll review the, the QSO structure that a client has. And these are the types of things I'm looking for when doing that review. The first one would be that the respective business transactions, accounts, and records are not intermingled so that the QSO and the credit union, all their accounting is done separately. And so that if I needed to go and see the financials from for the QSO, they're all separate and accounted for. There's no intermingling of the funds. There are separate accounts for the QSO. The, the account can be at the credit union. They can have an operating account just like a, a member would, but just maintaining separate accounting books for the QSO itself is a sign of corporate separateness that we're keeping all of our financials in one location and it's not being intermingled with the shareholder. Right. The second would be observing formalities of corporate separate procedures. One of those is board meetings. So just like the credit union board directors, they have their monthly meetings and they keep minutes and resolutions and those sorts of things. The QSO would do the same. They would have their own meeting schedule. They would keep their own meetings. And if there are, you know, they keep their own resolutions and documentations. You know, they keep their own files about how they're going about their business. Um, they like I said, you should be having regular meetings, whether that's monthly or quarterly. It really kind of depends on the industry you're working in. Uh, some clients, when they first get started on a venture, they may meet monthly just because there's operational things they're working through and, and trying to ramp that up. And then maybe once you know they get to a smoother point and it's smooth sailing, they may just meet quarterly because then it's more just like long-term business targets. Yeah. And I, I was going to say too, Mike, to, to kind of run off of that. I, I know that this factor is like a little further down because my, my question that came to mind there is, is how those boards look like, right? Like the QSO and the, the credit union boards, um, you know, when you're trying to maintain that separateness. Right. No, that's a good question. So what you want to think about 
is that the credit union board is the deciding body for the credit union's decision making. You don't want to have those same folks making the decisions for the QSO and being on the QSO board, because then it would seem as if the two entities are one and the same, being run by the same group of people. And that would lead a court to believe that there really is no separateness here. The companies are being run by the same handful of individuals. And so what I typically recommend is not having any credit union directors on the board if you can fill out a board of the QSO that way. If you need, you know, if if the board wants to be involved somehow, maybe have it one person, you know, depending on the size of the board. You just don't want the credit union board dominating the QSO board from a numbers perspective. So say there were, it was a five-person board, maybe one or two. Um, and really what I try to emphasize with clients is that for these QSOs, depending on the line of business they're in, if you have people in-house that have expertise in that line of business or in that industry, that's much more helpful and efficient than just having someone on the board just to be on the board that may not understand the intricacies of the business. Like for instance, uh, a lot of clients form insurance agencies. Right. Well, if there are some folks at the credit union that may have a background in insurance, you know, maybe they were an agent previously or they worked at one of the carriers or something like that before coming to work at the credit union, they may be a good person to be on the insurance agency board because they have some industry expertise as opposed to just um, someone on the credit union board of directors that just wants to be involved but may not have that expertise. Yeah, that makes sense. So sorry for uh, for skipping around there, but yeah, that, no, that question okay. came up. Um, the the next factor is is a important one to think about. Um, each is adequately financed as a separate unit in light of normal obligations, reasonably foreseeable in the business of its size and character. And so this gets into the term adequate capitalization. Mm-hmm. And what you want to think about is is there, and it's from the initial start of the company. Is there enough money here? to start the business and take care of any reasonably foreseeable liabilities and expenses. Along with that, capital is also having adequate insurance for the company, depending on the type of business that you're in. Um, This gets into making sure that in the planning of forming the CUSA, that you have an adequate business plan so that you understand what the potential expenses are going to be down the road and that you've accounted for those from an investment perspective that you have enough money so you're not having to continually go back to the credit union and say we need further investment we need further investment you've already laid it out in the business plan that this is what it'll cost until we can start turning a profit or generating enough revenue that we can cover our own expenses right and uh i'm sure too like that's like different right depending on the type of the the qso like if it's um you know like a wholly owned versus a multi-member versus like a what type of business they're engaged in like where that uh, capitalization recommendation, you know, comes, right. There's no like set figure for that. Right. Right. And and that leads into my next point. You know, I'll have conversations with clients and they'll ask me, you know, is this sufficient enough money? And it's not really a, a bright line. Yes. If you put in $500,000, that's enough money. It really depends on your business plan and your analysis of what it is going to take to get the business up and running to become successful. Now, one example, you know, I help clients from time to time, They'll start up the insurance QSO, and what they'll do is buy a book of business from an agent in the area that is transitioning. We retire, and as part of the transaction, they're buying the book of business, and this person is going to come work at the QSO. The startup capital for that would be the amount of money needed to 
enter into that transaction and actually purchase the book of business because from the moment you make that transaction, you already have a company that is going to be generating revenue from the moment the transaction takes place. So you may just need a little bit more money than what the transaction costs are just for like the period where you're waiting to receive commission checks from carriers and those sort of things. Okay. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, the next factor is about each entity holding themselves out to the public as a separate enterprise. Now, this is, in my opinion, one of the trickier ones that you want to be paying attention to because it's really dependent on how you're um, displaying both entities to the public and making sure that they're not confused as to who they're dealing with. And so things we're thinking about is um, having separate telephone numbers, um, a separate email domain. If the QSO is going to need office space on credit union premises, that there's signage saying that this is QSO space, no matter, you know, whatever the business is that, you know, if someone walks in, they don't think that they're just working with another department of the credit union. They understand that they're working with a separate entity, making sure that if you're going to send correspondence out to potential customers, that the QSO has its own letterhead. People have their own business cards with the proper um, logo. And, and the logo point is a, is a crucial one. Uh, some clients I'll see in doing these audits, they really just leverage the credit union's current logo or mm -hmm. trademarks or anything like that and implement them into the, the QSO's logo or name or something like that. And the issue arises that that could cause some confusion with folks that think, you know, ABC Credit Union is just who we're working with and they have like this separate department that they've named it's ABC Insurance or something like that. And everything looks exactly the same other than you put the word insurance. Uh, mm -hmm. Clients will, they'll send me their logos and say, here's what we're, we're doing. Not that I'm a marketing executive and no one's ever going to confuse me as one. <laughs> but uh, I, my suggestion is to kind of steer away from using the credit unions, incorporating the credit unions logo in the logo for the QSO. And what some clients do is they won't even use the credit union's name in the uh, QSO's name. They may make a reference to something in the community that would resonate with folks there locally. Okay. Uh, like a landmark or something that is specific, a specific reference to the area where they are in the country, that's, which may work better. Um, or you can go about, you know, using a trade name or something like that, that you can use for marketing purposes. I, I typically leave the marketing stuff up to the credit union folks, obviously, since that's not really my forte, but I just want to make the point that you don't really want to leverage the, the credit union's logo in the QSO's logo or name or anything like that. You, you want to make sure that you're showing that separateness. Another thing um, that the logo kind of goes with is websites. Mm -hmm. And so if you have a website for the QSO, which a lot, a lot of my clients do, they may have a link to that QSO website on the credit union page. You just want to make sure that you have some sort of disclosure or what I understand is called a speed bump to alert the person that you're being redirected somewhere else and you're going to be working with a different entity. This isn't, you're not working with the credit union if you proceed to, you know, go to this website. Right. And I, I think what kind of like weaves into each one of these factors, and, and this is all about emphasizing 
you know, uh, observing separate, you know, procedures, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, whether that's an arm's length contract, you know, to rent out the space, like you referenced, whether that's a separate logo or a separate webpage, you know, like that, that's the emphasis throughout. Yep. And, and just to hit back on something I mentioned before, uh, having a separate phone number, because we don't want to have happen is, I'll, I'll go back to the insurance example again. I call looking to speak with an insurance agent and I'm, I call and the person on the other end of their phone says, thank you for calling ABC Credit Union. How can we help you? That's going to confuse the person into thinking that they're getting insurance from the credit union as opposed to being directed straight to the insurance company itself. And so making sure you have those in place, but then also, you know, informing the employees at the credit union that may not be involved in the QSOS operations of what's going on so that they don't trip up and confuse somebody just because they may not be informed about what's going on and not understand the QSOS presence in the credit union's overall operations. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. And and I was going to say too, Mike, when you're, when you're bringing up, you know, just something that I've thought about and, 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 you know, seeing this issue arise is for credit union employees, you know, how, how does that, when you're thinking of the concept of, right, like maintaining separateness, mm-hmm. um, you know, cause a lot of these QSOs, like you had mentioned, they're, they're usually like wholly owned, you know, so how, how do employees of the credit union come into that consideration? So what we've done with clients and it's pretty common practice in the industry is that the credit union would loan individual employees to the QSO, and then the QSO pays the credit union for that person's time. If you're loaning the person 100%, then the QSO would be responsible to reimburse the credit union for 100% of that person's salary and benefits. Um, so it would be a relationship if you, an example would be like if you had to use a staffing company for something. In that mm-hmm. relationship, the credit union would be the staffing company for the QSO, and they would provide the the manpower to do the work. And then the key is when those individuals, while they're credit union employees, they're being loaned to the QSO, they take all the directions from the QSO as to how to do their job. And they're only focusing on QSO work when they're being loaned out to the QSO. They shouldn't be, you don't want people like trying to do two things at once working for both entities. It it puts a strain on the individuals themselves and it kind of muddies the water as to who do they actually work for? Right. Now that makes a lot of sense. And then similarly for other back office services, say, you know, you wanted to use the accounting department or marketing department for something, those departments could charge the QSO for their services at an hourly rate that, um, you know, is acceptable in your area. Something that's reasonable for accounting services, wherever you may be. Right. And so the last factor would be uh, unless the credit union has guaranteed a loan obtained by the QSO, all borrowings by the QSO indicate the credit union is not liable. It's pretty self-explanatory. If the if the QSO needs to go out and obtain a loan to for you know capital expenditures or just in the operations of the business, that the credit union is not a party to those documents. And because you don't want the lender thinking that the credit union is involved in this and then would be on the hook for any recourse if the loan were defaulted on. Right. Okay. So, yeah. So 
again, Mike, Mike, you do include all these factors in the um, the article. I think we're going to link it to the podcast, you know, so it's easy for everybody to to take a look at. Um, one thing that I did want to touch on in this area too is, is you had referenced the NCUA and and their regulations in this area. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, is there anything else that QSOs need to kind of help demonstrate this corporate separateness? So as part of forming the QSO and making the investment, credit union should obtain an attorney opinion letter that is a corporate separateness opinion. So based on an attorney's review of the formation documents, the governance documents, and their understanding of the operations that the credit union is only liable up to their investment in the QSO. And so the company was formed and set up in a way that the investor has this limited liability protection. And what what you wanna do from, from the NCOA's perspective, you want that letter from an attorney in the state where the entity is formed. So if it's, you know, if you're in Texas and the entity is formed in Texas, you want a Texas licensed attorney. And, you know, depending on the state where you are, you get the letter from them. And that all goes back to the, you know, because this this is like a state law issue, right? Like, you know, when, when it arises in the courts, if it goes that far, you know, it's dependent state to state, right? Correct. And each state has their own. Uh, we typically form limited liability companies. They all have their own limited liability company act. And mm-hmm. my understanding from doing research is that every state has their own statute on this corporate separateness idea and what they're looking for. All right. Great. So, um, yeah, I think that that's uh, all that I had to to bring up in the in this topic, Mike. Did you have anything else that uh, you want the listeners to know in this area? Yeah, the, the last point I would make is that this is an ongoing review that you want to continue to do because obviously, from the credit union's perspective, people may be coming and going. You know, employees move on to go other places, and you have new people in the, in those positions. So you want to continue to be reviewing to make sure that you're maintaining the separateness and that there is no confusion as to what everyone's role is and you know making sure that you know when you initially put your governance documents together like for an LLC it would be an operating agreement that what is written in that document is actually how things are being operated from a governance perspective and if they're not that you have taken the time to amend the documents so that they accurately represent how the governance is being conducted right yeah so i i know that this is a question or these are questions that arise i think for every qso that gets formed right you know we're you're kind of running through that checklist of all the documents that credit unions might need so uh you know thank you for taking time to kind of walk through this step by step you know i think it's really helpful um information for people that are looking to form qso's and uh, in like an area that's it's relatively pretty gray. <laughs> no, absolutely. And, and anyone listening, you have any questions, feel free to reach out. I'm happy to answer any questions or look over anything that you have. All right, great. Well, Mike, thanks for coming back and uh, we'll talk again soon. Thanks for having me. Talk to you soon. That concludes today's episode of In The Queue. Thanks to Mike Mulvey for joining the podcast again today to discuss how QSOs should hold themselves out and operate as distinct legal entities from their credit union investors. It's a topic that we receive questions from time to time due to the relative nuance of the subject matter. So thanks again to Mike for his time today. Uh, Make sure to, to subscribe to this podcast feed to receive the latest news and information in the world of credit unions and QSOs. I'm Mike Heller. And thanks for your time today for listening. Mm-hmm.
Thank you.